States and you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23 and of course Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode six. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallairness.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is facebook.com slash inallairness. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, BlackBerry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. My guest today sits 7th place all-time in NBA games played had eight seasons where he played every regular season game and a further six seasons playing 80 or 81 games. He played in two NBA finals, was named the NBA's Sixth Man of the Year in 1993 and earned All-Star status in 1994. He's an 18-year NBA veteran. Cliff Robinson, thanks for joining me. Oh, no problem. Thank you for uh, having the patience to uh, continue trying to get me on. No, I really appreciate it. Not, not, not a problem at all. Before we get into your great career... Overnight, two interesting NBA stories have emerged. First, Carmelo Anthony has been suspended for one game for his role in, in Busgate, attempting to confront KG following the, Knicks loss, following the Knicks loss the other night. What's your take on this, having played against both these guys? Uh, well, um, you know, I've, uh, you know, to be honest, I think, um, you know, KG has been a great competitor over his career. The hard work and the uh, that he's put in throughout his career. He's a great competitor. Uh, he's put in great numbers. He's put up great numbers uh, over his outstanding career. But uh, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, if you're going to play the game, play the game. Um, leave uh, someone's personal life out of it. Now, I don't know what actually took place, but. You know, from, you know, reports that I'm hearing is that, you know, he referred to uh, uh, Carmelo's wife. And, um, you know, to me, anybody's going to take offense to that. Anybody should stand up for their wife's, uh, uh, should stand up for their wife mm -hmm. and uh, defend her their her honor and, and not stand for uh, any wisecracks while, uh, while you're playing a game of basketball. Like I said, I don't know what actually was said, but the reports are saying that he said something, you know, that was in reference to uh, Carmelo's wife. And to me, I think that is, uh, I think that's just hitting a little below the line. Definitely. And he's got a one-game suspension, so uh, hopefully that'll be served quickly and he'll be back into his play for the Knicks. Now, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was the, the Kings franchise, which may be on the move with their owners, the Maloof Brothers possibly selling the team to an investor who has a deal to build an arena in Seattle, uh, hoping to lure back the, an NBA team. So this might be the Sonics 2.0. What's your early reaction to this, Cliff, and do you think that's a good thing for the NBA? 
I think it's a great thing for the NBA because, you know, Seattle's a great sports town. Mm. Um, you know, playing in, uh, playing in Portland for uh, eight years and then, you know, primarily playing most of my career on the West Coast, Seattle was always one of my favorite stops. So, you know, to uh, see the team leave, you know, after establishing so many friends up there and, uh, you know, whether it be on the court, people that were at the game, you know, giving me uh, giving me a hard time or friends that I know that just live up there. Yeah. Uh, it was... Uh, it was a disappointing and disappointing day for you know for all NBA fans to see uh, you know such a historic franchise leave a place where uh, you know basketball has been cherished for so long. Yeah, so it should be a great thing for the for the league. If oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it'll be a great thing to see those guys come back and uh, see a team come back into that area and get the fans uh, excited about. Uh, you know, the, uh, the 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 whole NBA experience again. Definitely, definitely. Now, you played college basketball at the University of Connecticut from 1985-86 through to your senior year in 1988-89. From your sophomore year, your Huskies were led by renowned coach Jim Calhoun. Your per-game production would increase significantly from therein. Can you discuss your experiences playing college basketball and your relationship with Coach Calhoun? Well, growing up in Buffalo, um, Buffalo, New York, uh, you know anybody who was involved in basketball during the uh, during the early '80s, you know the Big East was, uh, you know, a conference that was to be reckoned with. I mean, they had guys such as Patrick Ewing, uh, Chris Mullen, Pearl Washington, Raphael Addison. Uh, Earl Kelly. I mean, you can go down the line as the different guys that they had uh, uh, playing in the conference at the time. So if you were in this region of the country, uh, you couldn't help but be attracted to uh, playing in such a conference because all of those guys were uh, being recognized as being um, uh, uh, extremely good uh, uh, NBA prospects. So to uh, have an opportunity to uh, play in such a conference was uh, something that appealed to me uh, quite a bit. Definitely. Now, how, how was it playing for Coach Calhoun, and, and what did you think about his, his coaching style during your college years? Well, Cal, I mean, uh, Coach, uh, you know, we have a great relationship to this day. Uh, he's someone that I credit, uh, I, I give a lot of credit to for, uh, you know, pushing me the way he did. Uh, expecting, you know, such a, um, expecting the most out of, you know, what I was giving him on the court. I mean, he was, I mean, he was very demanding and, you know, as a player, you're, you're either going to embrace that or you're going to wash out. And, you know, to me, I was determined to, uh, you know, take, you know what he was giving me, and use it uh, to the best of my ability. And you know he's 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 produced a lot of NBA players. You know he's a three-time national champion over at uh, UConn. He brought a uh, program, you know, to uh, you know national recognition. Uh, when you when you think basketball, when you think college basketball, when you think national nationally recognized programs. 
you, you definitely have to put UConn in the. Uh, you definitely have to put UConn up there, and you definitely have to uh, put uh, Calhoun as one of the coaches that took a program that was not on the national scene and put it on the national scene. Yeah, definitely, and you certainly embraced that playing for for him, no doubt. Now this leads us nicely into the 1989 NBA draft. Only four players of your draft class would play a thousand games or more, and those are Glenn Rice, Sean Kemp, Bloody Devarts, and yourself. Now you top that list with 1,380 games played. You're also atop that list in total points scored at 19,591, ahead of sharpshooter Glenn Rice and also another decorated scorer, Tim Hardaway. Now those are some mighty impressive numbers, Cliff. Well, you know, I just tried to go out there and play my game. You know, I was very um, disappointed at where I went in the draft, so I had a lot of de- I had a lot of determination coming into the uh, into the NBA to show uh, you know those who uh, passed me up. You know, I was uh, a player that was very capable of playing in the NBA and playing at a high level. You were definitely a steal in the draft. I think you're second round pick number nine. Just off the top of my head. Yeah, well, yeah, I was. I think I was like 35 or 36 or something like that. You know, there was a lot of good players. You know, in that draft, I just, uh, you know, I, I always credit the fact that I, uh, I got started late playing basketball to, uh, you know, having such a long career. You know, I tell guys, you know, you could easily get bored with something if you start uh, trying to do it uh, too soon. So. You know, for me, I, I've always credited the fact that I uh, my first year of organized basketball was my uh, freshman year in high school, and I, I, I mean that was another thing that I think helped me have a uh, such a long, long-standing love for the game. You know, there's always a lot of variables, but if you get start get started doing something too early, you can fall out of love with it fairly quickly. That's a great point. Now, you're currently sitting 17th all-time in total NBA minutes played, which is absolutely phenomenal. The nearest active player is Tim Duncan. Uh, he's still a further 2,100 minutes behind as of the time we're recording today. So you've got some incredibly impressive numbers. Well, I appreciate that. I, like I said, I've, I've always just gone out and just tried to play my game with, uh, with a lot of passion and and, you know, I was blessed to really stay away from injuries. So, I, you know, I, I played on a lot of good teams uh, throughout my career. Uh, you know, we, we went to the playoffs. Uh, you know, I went to the playoffs 17 out of the 18 years of my career. Mm. And I was able to stay away from injuries, which was a blessing. Yeah, remarkable. Now, we'll talk about the 1990 NBA Finals shortly. But first, in 89-90, that was your rookie season. You came off the bench and played in every game for your Portland Trailblazers, and you were also Western Conference champions that season. Can you please just talk a little bit about your rookie campaign and how you adjusted to the NBA game? Well, it really wasn't that hard to uh, to make the adjustment because I came in, you know, I, I was drafted by a team that had, you know, great veteran leadership. Um, you know, every player on that team, you know, was a solid NBA player, you know, from Clyde Drexler to Terry Porter, uh, to Jerome Kersey, Buck Williams, uh, Kevin Duckworth, Wayne Cooper, Danny Young, 
uh, you know, it was just great veteran leadership on that team. So uh, when I when I went when I was drafted by Portland, I had no choice but to embrace the fact that <laughs> I was a young guy and I had to play behind a, a bunch of guys who were uh, extremely established and uh, extremely uh, professional. Yeah, it was a great situation for you, and uh, to be surrounded by such veteran leadership and some of those great players you mentioned, it's very good to be around those players. A lot of guys don't, you know, a lot of guys get drafted into situations where, uh, you know, they, they come in on a team where there's a lot of young guys. So, you know, for me, it was uh, a blessing to be able to be drafted by a team that, uh, you know, all the guys were uh, were veteran players, and they were all professional players. You know, they were they 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 knew their roles, they played their roles, and uh, you know, they were just consummate professionals. I used to really enjoy watching the uh, Terry Porter, Buck Williams, Jerome Kersey, those sort of guys. There's some great memories from watching those guys, and obviously yourself playing on that Portland Trailblazers team. Now, one of the greatest playoff games I ever watched was the 1990 Western Conference Semis where the San Antonio Spurs, who were led by a rookie, David Robinson, visited Memorial Coliseum to play your Trailblazers in an incredible seventh and deciding game that you eventually won in overtime. What are your memories of that game, Cliff? Can you recall back to that time? Well, what I remember was <laughs> being put in a position where I had to uh, to go in and be a factor in the game. You know, Kevin Duckworth got hurt, uh, Wayne Cooper was down so I had to start at center for for the first you know for the six games of that series mm. and uh, you know I you know I remember you know just trying to go out there and play my hardest because I was playing against uh, one of the great arguably one of the greatest centers to ever play the game and David Robinson Definitely. and I was just trying to go out there and compete um, you know I've always been a player who relished, you know, trying to uh, step up to the challenge against guys who had uh, bigger names than me. So uh, to be put in that position, I just was, uh, I was just looking forward to uh, going out there and trying to show that I was at least, if not the type of player he was, but in the same caliber of the, the type of player that he was. Yeah, definitely. And also, I forgot to mention, on that Portland Trailblazers team, you also had a very young, well, in terms of NBA years, Drazen Petrovic on the roster as well, and he played a, a role in that same game I'm talking about as well. Well, Drazen was a tremendous player. You know, he was he was already a a, a highly recognized player coming over from uh, from Europe. So when he got to the Blazers, he was just uh, raring to go. Uh, you know, when he got his opportunity, uh, he went out there and he performed, and uh, he was the type of guy that was was definitely ready to go out there and compete. And, uh, you know, to have someone like that on your team, you always, I mean, I, I've always loved that. You know, some guy who was, you know, somebody who was out, you know, out there ready to uh, uh, step up and, uh, you know, show that he deserved to be out there. And he, he definitely did that at, uh, at high levels. Yeah, he was obviously one of those ones just waiting for the opportunity. And when it presented itself, he was there to play. Now, speaking of the Memorial Coliseum, Whilst being one of the smallest capacity-wise, the Portland fans definitely loved their Blazers and, and supported the team like a few other fan bases ever have since. 
How was it playing in front of that raucous home crowd in Portland? Rip City. (laughs) Rip City. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, Portland had Blazers are the the only show in town up until they, uh, you know, got the uh, uh, Major League Soccer team there not too long ago. But it's the biggest show in town. And the fans always historically have gotten behind the Blazers. I don't care if they're winning. I don't care if they're losing. They've always been uh, uh, the type of crowd to, uh, you know, come out there and, and support their team. And for me, coming from uh, a situation where, you know, we weren't the best in the Big East, to uh, have the opportunity to play uh, in front of a crowd like that where they embraced everything we did, whether we were winning or losing, it was, uh, you know, it was always a great feeling because Portland is uh, immersed in history, uh, you know, when it comes to basketball. They won the championship in 77. Uh, so they've always been a team, uh, a city that has been, you know, ready to uh, support their team. Yeah, sure. Back back to the days of Bill Walton and uh, Jack Ramsey. Some great footage exists from those years as well. So, you know, nice, nice uh, insight. Thank you. Now, the 1990 NBA Finals series, it was a lot closer than some people may remember. You lost a close game one at Detroit. You stole home court with a tough overtime win in game two, but went back home and the Pistons won the next three games. Vinnie Johnson lived up to his nickname of the microwave. He scored 15 fourth quarter points in game five, including that go-ahead basket with less than a second to go. Can you describe the feeling of playing in your first NBA Finals? You know, coming from a, a program where we won the NIT my junior year, which, uh, which was a great stepping stone for the uh, University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. It was a great stepping stone. Uh, but to... Uh, have the opportunity to play in the finals, the NBA finals, uh, your rookie year, it's, it's, it's really indescribable. Mm. And to play against uh, a player that I looked up to so much, which was Isaiah Thomas. I thought Isaiah was, I thought he was a, a tremendous player. I thought he was a, a tremendous competitor. So to uh, have an opportunity to go out and uh and play against those guys in my rookie year it was uh it was kind of like a dream come true i mean i'm still friends with uh with some of those guys on that team to tell you the truth uh james edwards who played that year he killed us in that series he was my best man at my wedding all right okay yeah so you know i'm still i still have close ties to uh a lot of those guys on that team uh vinnie johnson uh you know, Dennis Rotman, who I've gone on uh, uh, quite a few tours with over the last uh, last two years over to Southeast Asia. So um, it, it was uh, a dream come true. Even though we lost the series, when you when you lose something like that, it's always going to be heartbreaking. Uh, but to lose it to uh, such a uh, classy group of guys, uh, you know, when I look back on it, I guess, you know, it, it's not that bad because I have a lot of respect for those guys. Oh, it's great to hear that uh, you've got links to those those guys still, even 20, 20 plus years on. And also, I do remember in that series, James Edwards was a killer on the baseline. He made that many baseline jump shots, particularly in games one and two, I can recall, but certainly <laughs> the Pistons on their way to uh, that title. Oh, he killed us. He killed us. We talk about it all the time. You know, even in even in game two where they went to him uh, on the uh, on the block, uh, he shot his patented fadeaway. I blocked it, 
but when we had a conversation today, he'll still say I filed him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's great. It's always awesome to have some fantastic memories about it, even though the results are <laughs> going your way. Definitely. In 1992, your Portland team, led by Clyde Drexler, faced Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the NBA Finals. Game one, MJ went off. He scored 39 points, and 35 of those were in the first half. The crowd were already going insane, but when MJ launched arguably that most famous three-point shot he ever made over your outstretched arm, Chicago Stadium's foundations were literally shaking. What are your thoughts about that game, Cliff, and the role that you played and still play to this day in highlights of MJ's career? You know, uh, to be um, tied to you know such a play uh, during probably the biggest biggest series of the you know at the time the, the the NBA Finals is the biggest thing that you'll play in in your NBA career. I mean I I mean I look at it with enjoyment even though uh, it was a situation where we didn't uh, win the ring we didn't finish out the uh, finish out what we accomplished to uh, to get we didn't win the championship. But to uh, be tied to such a play and such a player, I mean, I don't look at it with animosity. Uh, I mean, it was one play. It was one play in an 18-year career. I've caught a lot of uh, criticism, so to speak, from different play, you know, different people, you know, because they thought I was the, the one person that was guarding him for the whole game, which, which actually wasn't the case. Um, you know, I just happened to switch out on him and contest a shot, which was my job. You know, that's what you do. You contest shots. You don't give guys free shots. But to be tied to uh, that play is not a big deal. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's an honor because right now, over the last uh, three or four years, if you look at the uh, the opening to the NBA Finals, they show Michael doing that, and they show me as well. So. You know, that's being a part of NBA history. It doesn't bother me at all. No, and you were right there in his face as well. He couldn't do much more. I don't think anybody could have stopped him at that stage. And again, as you said, it was you're in the wrong place at the wrong time because it's uh, you did your best to close out and block that, but just yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, that's all I did was close out, and he made a uh, he made a big three. I mean, he wasn't you know he wasn't recognized as being a three point shooter that night. He was hot and. You know, you got to give a guy like that credit. I mean, he scored over 30,000 points in his NBA career, close to 30. I'm, I'm sure it's somewhere close to that. I mean, he's a uh, six-time NBA champion. I mean, the accolades can go. I can go on and on about the guy's accolades. But to be tied to one play that is recognized by so many people across the globe, how can you be, uh, I mean, it, it's... It's it's nothing to be uh, uh, to take offensive. For sure, it's great to actually be linked to that, and I'm I'm pleased to hear your thoughts on it. To be honest, here's Jordan for three. Yes. Did you see that one? Michael indicating he can't believe it. Now, unfortunately for Portland, you fell to the Bulls in six games. This is your second finals appearance in three seasons. Is it possible to even compare the 1992 finals with 1990? Well, uh, the 92 series uh, was a little different because I had a bigger role. Yeah. You know, I had a bigger role, and I thought we were 
uh, I thought we were primed to win a championship. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I mean, I guess like that's the only thing I can say that's different. You know, my rookie season, I was more of a guy who was just along for the ride mm-hmm. and who had an opportunity to get out there and try to make some plays and was just out there trying to play hard. In 92, that was my third season. You know, I, I, I really started, you know, to uh, feel comfortable in the position that I was in. So to lose that series uh, when, you know, especially after uh, – you know, having the uh, the great run that we did to get in the position, uh, it was uh, you know it was more disappointing. I can I can understand. Now moving on, the nineteen ninety three season was a very special one for you. You won the NBA's Sixth Man of the Year award. This would probably be considered your breakout year. You started twelve games, yet you averaged nineteen points and seven boards a game, which are super numbers for a sixth man. What changed that season? to propel you from being a good contributor to being one of the NBA's best off the bench? Confidence. Mm-hmm. Confidence. I think that's one thing that sets a lot of uh, guys apart. Uh, you know, because when you, you come into the NBA, you're, uh, you're playing against the best. Yeah. Playing against the best college players from each team. You're playing against the best college players across the globe. So... Um, you know, if you don't have confidence and belief in what you're doing, uh, that's how a lot of guys don't last that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, I was able to, uh, you know, just maintain a high level of confidence and belief in my ability. And uh, I think that's what uh, helped me propel myself into that position. Sure. From around 1993 onwards, you became a legitimate outside shooting threat too. You were a trendsetter of sorts, a six foot ten big who would launch and importantly make three point shots. Can you please talk about that development in your game? Well, you know, someone that I really looked up to when I was in, uh, uh, in the NBA was Hakeem Olajuwon. Okay, he was, uh, you know, he was a guy who always brought different things to his game each year and he would ask me uh, what have you brought what have you brought into your game this year you know he, he would always ask me that question what did you what are you doing differently this year than you did last year so uh, I always prided myself on being a good outside shooter but once again it goes back to being confident in it mm. you know being confident in it. you know taking those shots in the game in believing in those shots that you're taking, you know whether it be uh, working on a jump hook, whether it be you know taking a shot when you're uh, when you're open. Uh, my whole thought process was always bring something uh, new to your game, and you know they they moved the uh, they moved the three point line in, and I took quite a few three pointers that year. And uh, I made a lot of them, but you know, it, it was a it was an opportunity for me to uh, really start stepping out and uh, you know believing in that uh, part of my game. Yeah, definitely. It certainly paid off because you had some great numbers, and as uh, as you mentioned, it's also nice to hear an insight there about your relationship with the Elijah one and how he also helped challenge your game and, and develop it even further. Well, you know, that's that. You know, that's the part, that era right there, there was, 
a lot of great competitors, but there were also a lot of guys who, uh, you know, really uh, tried to uh, uh, be mentors and, you know, challenge, you know, challenge your ability. And he was one of those guys who, who did that for me. Obviously, a fantastic player, uh, one of the NBA's greatest ever, and his dream shake was almost impossible to uh, try and block that one. Only two seconds left to shoot it. Cliff Robinson beat the clock, a three-pointer, a 35-point night. New career high for Cliff Robinson. We're tied at 98. The next season, 1994, you were an NBA All-Star. Can you talk about that season in general and also your memories of being an All-Star? Uh, you know, that season was, that was another, I mean, I had a great stretch during those, you know, those years in Portland. And I, I like I said, I always credit it to those guys who, um, being drafted by a team and playing with, uh, you know, such competitors, uh, such, you know, su- such professional players. Um, you know, Clyde was a, uh, consistent all-star to, uh, be able to play on a team with a guy who, uh, has such, um, uh, you know, such a high level of respect for the game and, uh, you know, such a uh, high level of uh, competitiveness, it, it, it rubbed off on me. So, you know, each year I just tried to, you know, get better at what I uh, did out on the floor and, you know, 94 was uh, was a year where it all came together. You know, it all came together and to, uh, you know, have the opportunity to be out there on the floor uh, during All-Star Weekend, um, you know, it, it it let me know that I had arrived. It let me know that all the hard work that I was putting in was paying off. Yeah, definitely. Some of the teammates you had on your 94 All-Star team, was it good to perhaps mix with those players that you were usually an opponent of during the season? Oh, well, I mean... I- I mean, the Eastern Conference had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Uh, I mean, you, you can <laughs> you can go down the line. I mean, the, the starting lineup in the, the West was Sean Kemp, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, Clyde Drexler. I mean, it was just it let me know that man, I'm out here on the biggest the the biggest uh, weekend in NBA of the NBA season, where everybody else. You know, in the NBA is on vacation, watching these 24 guys play. So, you know, so for me, it was uh, like I said, it, it let me know that I uh, that I had arrived, and all the hard work that I uh, was putting in, uh, you know, let make me deserve that I, that I should be out here. Well and truly. Now, your last five seasons at Portland, you averaged 19 points and six rebounds a game in about 36 minutes. Fantastic and, and consistent numbers. Now, after those eight seasons playing for the Blazers, you then signed as a free agent with the Suns and played on some good Phoenix teams with some really great players. Can you please talk about that move to Phoenix and how your team's there compared to your many years prior with the Blazers? That's the one thing I don't do. I, I don't compare. I, I try not to, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, especially at that time, uh, of the Western Conference, the Western Conference was uh, the Western Conference was tough. The move down to Phoenix, I mean, we had, I mean, we had some great team. I mean, we had great teams down there. Sure. But we had great teams down there. We had a, uh, I mean, we had a front court of myself, 
Tom Gugliotta, Luke Longley, and uh, Jason Kidd at the uh, point guard. Uh, we had uh, McDice for one. I mean, we had McDice at one time. I mean, we had. I mean, we had a lot of talent down there, but at the same time, the the Western Conference was tough. I mean, the Spurs was tough. Uh, Sacramento was tough. L.A. was tough. Portland was uh, Portland was tough. Uh, so uh, we just uh, ran into a situation where I mean, if we were in the Eastern Conference, that same team, we would have been, uh, you know, we would have been one of the top teams in the East. But unfortunately, we were in the West, and you know, running up against Shaq. Every, <laughs> we ran up against Shaq or you know David Robinson and those guys every year. You know, it, it was tough. We had some good teams on there. We had some good runs, but it just uh, it just wasn't uh, wasn't meant to be because the West was extremely tough. Now, your son's teams were filled with some great personalities that I enjoyed following at the time, including Rex Chapman, Cedric Sabalos, KJ, Kevin Johnson, Danny Manning, Penny Hardaway, Mario Alley, and Jason Kidd. Can you maybe just talk about some of those great players that you got to experience uh, on-court time with? during your time at the Suns? Oh, that was uh, probably one of the best times that I've had. You know, just from the standpoint of uh, being coached by Danny Ainge, uh, playing with the younger group of guys, you know, that were, um, you know, kind of my same age group. Um, Have an opportunity to play with KJ, who, you know, killed us when I was with the <laughs> When I was with Portland, he was, uh, you know, he played at such a high level against us. You know, Danny Manning, National Player of the Year. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a great time for me. Uh, you know, actually having to play down in Phoenix and uh, being traded from Phoenix was like one of the uh, most disappointing days of my NBA career because the weather was great, the fan base was great. That was another city where. You know the fans really get behind the team, uh, and the ownership was great. You know Jerry Colangelo and uh, Brian Colangelo. Uh, you know I always looked at those guys with uh, with such high respect because they were men of their words. You know if Jerry Colangelo gave you his word, uh, it was pretty pretty golden. Oh, excellent to hear. It's good to to have that sort of backing behind you as a player, knowing that those sort of things, whatever they do say, will happen. Actually, does happen. When you played for the Suns and you had your former teammate Danny Ainge coaching you, how was that relationship then? As he was your coach compared to when you were playing with him? You know what? It was a little different because Danny's always been a jokester. Yeah, he's always been a jokester. So I mean, if you had a uh, <laughs> If you had an issue with uh, how you were being played or something, Danny was very good at, you know, bringing you into the office and getting you to, to uh, forget totally about what you came into the office to talk to him about. Uh-huh. You know, because he would diffuse the situation with uh, with jokes and to, and he would get you to totally forget what you came in there to talk to him about. But you know, playing for him was uh, it was good. I mean, I had a, I had a really good time uh, playing for him. It was just uh, some days he didn't know whether he wanted to play small ball or if he wanted to uh, uh, to go with a traditional lineup, and that that uh, was frustrating at sometimes. Hmm. I, I can imagine. 
Now, in 2001, you headed east, traded to the Detroit Pistons. In your second season at Detroit, you made it to the conference finals before losing out to the New Jersey Nets. What do you remember most about your time spent in the Motor City? That was um, that was another very good time for me, even though I was I was disappointed after being traded from uh, the Suns. You know, after uh, realizing that I was was going to Detroit uh, and being coached by Rick Carlisle, who I had a lot of respect for. He was an assistant up in uh, Portland when I was there, yes. and that was his first opportunity as a head coach. Uh, it it kind of gave me a little more uh, excitement about. Uh, being in the uh, being in Detroit and knowing the tradition that they had over there and the fact that they were trying to get the team back in a position to uh, uh, be recognized as one of the better teams in the NBA. So when I went over there, you know, seeing the players that was there, Stackhouse, Jerry Stackhouse, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, you know, Chucky Atkins, um, Quellis Williamson, it was it, it kind of reminded me of a group of guys that um, everybody had written off. You know that they thought those guys were, uh, you know, they thought we were at the end of our careers and um, we weren't going to be able to get anything done. And you know, I'll also have to mention Michael Curry, who was a big part of what we did over there. But we used that as a motivational factor. We were able to uh, uh, play with uh, such a chip on our shoulders. Uh, you know, we made the game ugly. You know, basketball is always not going to be a uh, uh, free-flowing, fast-breaking kind of game, and that's what we embraced. We embraced the uh, the old Detroit attitude. We, we tried to uh, play a game because we weren't the best offensive team, but we played great defense, and uh, that was uh, something that uh, you know helped put us in a position to uh, uh, win our division two years in a row, and put us in a position to establish that Detroit was back. Yeah, now that those Detroit teams of that era that you played on, they were the staple of the game was their defense. That's definitely the case, and obviously that team was just building up to be the championship contender for the following few seasons. Now, following your time at the Pistons, you finished your career with stints at Golden State Warriors and New Jersey Nets, playing beyond your 40th birthday. How do you rate your final seasons in the NBA? Well, I mean, I, I, I wish I could have played. Uh, you know, I wish I could have played more in some cases, but at the same time, you know, in the NBA, you have to um, accept the role that you're given. Sometimes you're not always going to be the uh, the top scorer. You're not always going to be the guy who gets the most minutes. And for me, it, it fell back on understanding what it took to be a uh, a professional. And uh, being a professional means that you have to accept your role uh, in whatever position that it may be, whether it's being the top scorer, being a guy who comes off the bench, and you know, when you have the opportunity to go in there, take advantage of that opportunity. And, um, you know, that's what I try to embrace. Yep, that's a great, uh, honest answer. Now, I asked Christian Leitner a similar question when I spoke with him on an earlier episode. Given the number of older players still in the NBA, Grant Hill, Kurt Thomas, Jason Kidd, and Steve Nash, 
Did you ever seriously consider a comeback to the NBA following your retirement in 2007? <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I did uh, I, I did consider a comeback, but um, you know after I started working out and working towards the comeback, uh, it was definitely uh, quickly uh, uh, it, it was quickly forgotten about because you know once you start doing those NBA movements, you stop playing on a regular basis. Um, your body forgets about uh, your, your body forgets about doing that stuff. So, and uh, you know when you do do it, uh, uh, you, you tend to get hurt when you're not doing it on a regular basis. So, um, you know, for me, I uh, I thought about it. I thought I could do it. I probably could have done it if I really would have uh, stuck with it, but I couldn't work through the pain. I can imagine it would be an enticing thought to, to be back in the league, but also the amount of work and possibly the pain that you'd endure afterwards maybe not quite worth it after such a stellar career at that time. Anyway. Exactly. I mean, you, I mean, once you're done, that's why I, I, uh, I really give Rashid a lot of uh, respect. Uh, he did it, you know, after being out a season. I tried to uh, think about doing it after being out two seasons. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's right. I forgot to even mention Rashid Wallace. He's obviously still lacing him up with the Knicks at the moment, so very true. Now, in 2008, uh, your former teammate, Kevin Duckworth, sadly passed away at just 44 years of age. Can you briefly talk about Duck and his influence on you and your life in general, please? Well, Duck, uh, you know, he was like a big brother to me. He was actually the... Uh you know, the first guy on the Blazer team to uh, really take me under his wing. Um, you know, he showed me that there was more to more to life uh, than just, you know, playing basketball. You know, he was the type of guy who always was able to do other things, whether it was fishing, whether it was, you know, hunting, whatever it might have been, he was one of those guys who had other things in his life other than basketball. And that was something that he uh, he shared with me. And, you know, over the years of my NBA career, uh, during the off season, I was able to uh, get away from that, uh, that part of the game myself. You know, just try to take yourself away from the game during the summer and show that, you know, give yourself other things to do. Mm. That's no, good. Thanks, thanks for sharing the, some of those memories there with him. I know sometimes a difficult thing to talk about teammates who have passed way too too soon, but I do appreciate that. A few quick questions, Cliff, before we wrap things up. There's three things I've always wondered, and hopefully you'll be able to answer these for me. First, the headband. You were one of the first players to ever rock a headband that I can recall, apart from obviously Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Walton. When and why did this first happen? Well, I was actually trying to do it in college, but Calhoun told me uh, that uh, he didn't think it was a good idea, uh, that, uh, you know, he didn't want to take uh, me to separate myself from the team, so I didn't do it at UConn. But it was something that I uh, that I thought about for, for quite some time, and, you know, when I, uh, when I, was, got, when I was able to... Uh, uh, you know, get you know, play with the Blazers. I uh, I asked the trainer. I said, "Can you get me some headbands?" And he he he, he kind of thought it was funny, but I was I was I was serious. I asked him to give me some headbands, and 
he finally did it. Uh, I think it was January 17th in, I think it was 92. I want to say it was 92. We were playing uh, in New Jersey. Uh, you know, he had some headbands, and I uh, I went out, and I had the headband on. The fans gave me such a hard time, and uh, that's when I knew the headband was here to stay. <laughs> I like that. That's a great answer. Uh, and I like how you know the, the particular date as well when you first got the headband going. That's that's cool. Now, secondly, in the NBA, your jersey number was either 3 or 30 for your whole career. Can you please explain the significance of the number 3? Uh, I signed my first NBA contract on August 3rd. Uh-huh. So I, I went with uh, I went with the number three, and then when I went uh, when I went to play with other teams, and I was when I went to play with the Suns, uh, I think Rex Chapman had the number three. Yeah. So I went with 30, which to me was still three because it was just it was just uh, inverted. Gotcha. That's good. I, I like to know some of these little uh, backstories, and they're quite interesting, I, I find. Now, last but not least, Uncle Clippy. Do you mind explaining the origins of your nickname? I, I've read a couple of different stories online, but I'd just love to hear from you. How did it come about? Well, well it, it basically started, uh, we beat the, uh, we beat Utah in the Western Conference Finals. I think it was, I want to say it was, uh, Oh, I think it was the year. It was I think it was '92. We beat uh, we beat Utah in uh, in Utah for the Western Conference Finals, and uh, I just uh, started dancing and um, you know having a good time. The reporters asked me, uh, "Oh, what do you call that?" And I just call I just said, "Oh, this is the Uncle Cliffy," and it just kind of stuck ever since then. Ah, uh, fantastic! It's good to hear the origins of uh, such a, a great nickname. Now, Cliff, just before we do finish things, can you please tell listeners about your recently established non-profit organization, which you've called the Robinson Network? Makes sense. So can you just perhaps tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, it's it's basically um, our foundation works with other uh, athletes, uh, celebrities uh, across the board to try to... Uh, Partner up uh, with different with their foundations to try to uh, uh, work toward putting together uh, events to uh, to bring together a bigger pot, you know, where each each uh, foundation can take home uh, a, a, a nice uh, chunk of money to uh, put towards the, the, their initiatives. It's always nice to work with different. Uh, different groups and partner up with different groups and that's that's basically what we try to do Our mission is to uh you know work with uh underprivileged kids and uh when you partner up with different foundations uh and everybody uh use their networking ability it it always gives you ability to uh bring together a bigger pot and therefore you're able to uh uh, reach more people and help more people with uh, what you're trying to uh, to do with your uh, foundation. Well, it's fantastic to hear about, and you're doing some great things, so wish you all the best with that endeavor going forward. Now, just finally, people can keep in touch with you and follow you on Twitter. Your your Twitter handle is at UncleCliffy30. At, at UncleCliffy30. Yep. Do you enjoy the interaction that you have with fans and, and being able to have such a close 
back and forth with people, either players you play against or just fans in general? Well, you know, it's it's always. I think you know this is this is one part of the social networking aspect is something that we didn't have as players, but we're still, uh, you know, we're we're still in contact. You can still be in contact with your fans, uh, whether you're a current player or a uh, retired player. And I just try to uh, uh, put myself in a position, you know, connect with the fans, and uh, this is a great way to do it. Very true, and if it weren't for Twitter, this conversation wouldn't even be happening. So I do appreciate you taking the time to, to reach out right. and chat. I appreciate you reaching out to me, Adam. Now, Cliff, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks so much for your time, and I wish you all the best going forwards. Well, thank you, thank you, mate. And I wish I could get down to uh, get over to Australia and we can hang out uh, one of these times. I'd love that. I'd love that. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.